Psalm 62. To the choir master, according to Judithan, a psalm of David. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. For him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning man, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. That power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for this word. And as we reflect on this word and as we reflect on the year that has been and look forward and ahead, we ask that you will bless us. Help us, as the title for today's message says, to wait upon you alone for our salvation and for all good things. Father, we pray that you'll bless us in this time for your glory and our joy now. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is the 29th of December, 2019. We are three days away from the new year. And what will the next year have in store for us? I don't know. I don't have 2020 vision. Yeah, there you go. But if I asked you how 2019 was for you, what would you say? If I asked you to reflect on the year, what would you come up with as a reflection? I know some of us have had relatively good years. Praise God for that. Some of us, this year was a bit meh, you know, just another year that just went past. And still for quite a number of you, I know that this year has been a big year and a tough year. I know that there are a number of us who started off this year with high hopes and dreams, but we finished it in a very different state. Some of us had, had, have had very, a very rough year. Now, if we're a church that weeps with those who weep and carries each other's burdens, then even those who have had a good year should be also feeling the weight of those who are suffering and those who are struggling even now. I know some who really struggled at work this year. Going to work each day was a big stress, dealing with difficult managers and difficult bosses, difficult work situations. I know one girl in our church who's basically had to quit. Uh, because she just couldn't handle the abuse that she received from her manager. I know some here who had to cope with the stress of ill health, either in ourselves or in our loved ones. And sadly, for some of us, we had to go home 
overseas or had to attend funerals of family and loved ones here. And there's a whole bunch of stresses that come along with that. I know marriages in our church, some of them have been quite difficult this year. I know that some relationships have broken up, a small handful of them that I've had to counsel people through, uh, dealing with the, the, the fallout of that. There's been mental health issues this year as well. A few people who are on the verge of or try to commit suicide. And if not that, then a number of you guys even here for which this might be your last Sunday as you head back home overseas to Singapore. You've enjoyed your time and it's been a bit stressful trying to get things ready, but you're looking to the future and you're already anxious about it. I don't have 2020 vision, but with each passing year, I can know with greater certainty that life is full of stresses, most of them unpredictable, all of them assured. So the big question that comes out of for you today and for us, and as we look at this word, as we look at this psalm, how are we going to handle the stresses and anxieties? Not just next year, but the year after that, and the year after that, and for the rest of life. That's, this is kind of where we find David in our psalm. We don't know much about his personal situation today, but we know that there is some sort of trouble and stress and anxiety. And if you know David's life, that's not unfamiliar. But he begins this psalm in a place of quiet, in silence. So have a look with me at verses 1 and 2 again. Verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence, from him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. See, in these opening lines, we see someone waiting in silence for God. And the first thing you want to see in verse 1 is the definiteness of this. The word alone there in verse 1 uh, and in verse 2, and the word only appear a few times throughout the psalm. Now, that word carries a sense of forcefulness. I have a look again at verse 1. It could be translated, For God alone truly my soul waits. In verse 2, He alone truly is my rock and my salvation. See, David right at the start here is being emphatic. He is declaring his trust in God. So when we think about trusting God, we, we, we probably think about big actions, big words, big faith, ordinary people doing extraordinary things for the God as they believe and follow Him. But here... Trust is expressed in this rather novel way of waiting in silence. A silent wait upon, sa upon the saving God who most definitely alone is David's hope, David's rock-solid footing, who is the fortress protecting him from his enemies. What does this silent wait look like? What kind of shape does it take? Well, let's keep going and find out. First, though, we see... David compelled to pray in this way. So we got to ask, what is, what is it that's pushing him to pray this way? What is causing David to be in silence, to keep quiet as he speaks to his soul, to keep trusting God? Have a look at verse 3. How long will you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Over the past few weeks, we've seen David on the run from various enemies. And again, we're not exactly sure who these enemies are. But in addressing them directly in verse 3, he is painting a picture for what they're like. Giving us a picture of wicked people with great power. First, he says, how long will you attack a man? You see that phrase, how long? 
When you read that through the Psalms, it's usually addressed to God, usually in the sense of how long, O Lord. So David is using a familiar phrase, but instead of addressing it to God, he's now addressing it to men. I think there's a bit of a parallel we're meant to see there between how, God see, how David sees God and how he's actually seeing these men. You see them attacking David, battering him in the middle of verse 3. That word battering is actually closely related to the word murder. And so there's a sense that these powerful men are killing whoever they please. Verse 4, David pictures them in higher positions. Right? They have the high ground. Having the high ground is the advantage in battle. Right? It's that moment in Return of the Sith in Star Wars number 3, where Obi-Wan Kenobi says to Anakin, don't tempt me because I have the high ground. What does Anakin do? He jumps and then he gets his legs and his arms chopped off. You have the high ground, you have the advantage. Right? You get a sense of their wickedness as well as we find out in verse 4 that they enjoy lies and falsehood. They take pleasure in these things. They're blessing people with their mouths but inwardly cursing, getting away with the, their flattery. They appear to have everything going for them. That seems to be the picture being painted here in verses 3 and 4. They are people who've got power. They've got wealth. We'll see that in a moment. And they are getting away with their lies. And it feels as though they are standing over David seemingly victorious. And it's into this context that David speaks to himself. Do you notice how in verses 5 and 6 they're essentially a repetition of verses 1 and 2? But do you notice also that verses 1 and 2 seem to be said for the benefit of the person listening or reading? Have a look at verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. But now notice how David takes those same words in verse 5 and speaks them directly to himself. Verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is found from him. Why the need to repeat himself? Why the need to speak to himself? Speaking in this way probably shows that things got better, uh, things got worse before they got better. And so his need to preach to his soul, to remind himself of these truths in verses 1 and 2, is so much more immediate. If, I, think I've, I think I've used this illustration before, but I'll say, I'll say it again. I've got three children. My youngest daughter is Eliza. She's three and a half years old. She's old enough to know and to hear, hear instructions. So if I tell Eliza, Ellie, you see that paper on Daddy's desk? Don't touch that paper. Ellie, don't touch the paper on Daddy's desk. Ellie, if you touch the paper on Daddy's desk, you're going to be in big trouble. What am I expecting her to do? Touch the paper, right? Why does David here need to keep repeating these truths to himself? Because it's likely that he's going to forget them. It's likely that he's going to succumb to the, to the temptation a bit later on to follow after these guys who are trampling all over him, to give up on the God who alone is his hope. Listen to him again in verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Right? In the heat of battle, in the mounting stress of the moment, he preaches to himself a familiar sermon. Wait in silence. Wait, wait, wait. He is, as Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, speaking to himself rather than listening to himself. Now, he's not declaring an outcome. He's not demanding something in this situation. He's verbalizing an, in, an alternative truth 
that his heart desperately needs to hear. See, I suspect David was probably going through what most of us go through when stress and anxiety hit us. We start preaching a doom and gloom sermon in our heads. Right? His heart and mind preaching one sermon, and so he has to preach to himself another sermon. Right? Who's your favorite preacher? Don't say Ben or I, right? And sometimes it's like either Ben or I. But you think about your favorite preacher, but your favorite preacher is not someone out there. It's not John Piper, it's not Matt Chandler. Your favorite preacher is you. Because you preach a sermon in your head every single time stress and anxiety hits. And it is a very convincing sermon. And so David here does what he, he has to do. He has to preach an alternative sermon to himself. To speak God's truth to himself rather than listen to himself. And as we look at verses 5 to 10, you can see the content of what he's speaking to himself. First, he repeats himself again with the emphatic alone, truly, for God alone my soul wait in silence. And I think that line should be quite encouraging for all of us because David's silent waiting was not full of calm and serenity. His silent trust was happening in the middle of stress and anxiety. Those battering him, and look, they looked all-powerful, they looked all-knowing, they were threatening to crush him. And yet, the stillness he is praying for sits side by side with worry and stress. And I think that's an encouragement to us, because sometimes we can read this and think that David was able to kind of get rid of all of these worries and stresses, and that he was able to ascend to a place of silence and calm and serenity because all of this stuff had been taken care of. But that's not what's happening here. In fact, David shows us that stillness happens in the middle of stress and anxiety and worry. Second, he reminds himself of who God is. God is his rock, his salvation, his fortress, the source of his protection and security. And again, he repeats it to himself as though to convince his fearful heart, I shall not be shaken. Verse 7 again repeats himself, God is my salvation, God is my God, God is my refuge. This repetition three times now, we have heard these words, moving his heart from fear to refocus on God. Last year I stumbled upon this brilliant definitional difference between worry and trust. Worry is glancing at God while gazing at your circumstances. Trust is glancing at your circumstances while gazing at God. And that's what David is doing here. He is preaching to himself to fix his eyes, his physical eyes and the eyes of his heart upon God and not on what is going on around him. And you can see that by how much this psalm is taken up, not by his circumstances. You, you notice as we read through it, we're not actually told very much about what's happening. We are told a lot about his God. And it's this truth that he turns our attention to now. See, in verses 1 to 7, David has been kind of speaking to himself, and then he addressed the wicked, and then he began kind of giving himself uh, his own attention and turning his heart back to God. But from verse 8, he turns his attention to the listener. It's like he's saying to them, it's been tough. I've been trying to put my trust in God. Now you need to do the same thing as well. So have a look at verse 8. 
Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. It is the task of God's people to trust God at all times, especially when they face when they face difficult circumstances. And it's their joy and their privilege to be able to pour out their hearts before God. Again, what a wonderful encouragement this is. God's people are invited to be able to pour out all that is on their hearts before God. Nothing is off limits. There is no pain or cry too raw that God cannot handle. There is no subject matter that God is not offended by. You can pour out all that is on your heart and your mind before God, as David says at the end of verse 8, because God is a refuge for his, his people. He is a safe space and a safe place to be. You can bring all your fears, all of your worries, all of your stresses and your anxieties, and you can pour them out before a God who is willing to listen. Can you imagine for a moment that you received an invitation to meet with Queen Elizabeth? What would you do to prepare yourself for that meeting? What would you prepare yourself to say to her? Can you imagine you've only got a few moments to meet her? What words could you say to not only leave a good impression, but a lasting impression on the Queen of England? Now imagine you've been, that day arrives, you, you, you've prepared physically, you're, you're in your best suit, your best gown, you went out, you bought a new suit, you, you bought a new dress, and, and as you come before the Queen, she, she walks past and she greets you. And you break down and cry. And the stress of 2019 just pours out of you. You cry about your difficult boss and work situation that's causing you sleepless nights. You weep as you share about your family struggles. You wipe away a tear as you then start talking about how you've been feeling distant from God and that his sweet presence is just not felt anymore. You crumble to your knees and you just let out that you don't know how if you have any strength to carry on. How do you think she will react? Imagine she comes over to you and she picks you up and you're surprised at the strength of a 93-year-old woman. <laughs> she sends her aides and her helpers away and she takes you into private. You sit down with her and she pours you a cup of tea. And then she leans in and she says, tell me everything, I'm listening. Friends, that's the access we have with our Creator God, the Creator of the universe. The privilege we have to pour out all that we have on our hearts before Him because He is a safe place, a refuge, and a God willing to hear. It's an utter privilege given to people who are but a breath. Now look at verse 9 which might be a bit tough to understand, but essentially David is saying all life, even those who consider themselves important and powerful, all life is but a breath, a vapor. The Hebrew word is havel, right? Like here one moment, gone the next, like trying to catch a wisp of smoke in your, in your hands. You ever tried to do that? You blow out a candle and you play with the smoke afterwards trying to catch it. That's what life is like. 
David's point is that those who seem powerful aren't really that powerful. They might look like they have it all together. They might look like they are in charge, but they're not. He's not saying their lives are unimportant and insignificant. He's saying that their lives are just as short-lived and as vulnerable as everyone else. So therefore, in verse 10, do not be like them. Do not trust the things that they trust. The wicked have gained their riches from robbery and other sinful means, but don't chase after those things. It's a temptation that we've touched on a few times in the past few months, and for good reason. If If the Bible needs to constantly warn us of a particular danger, then we need to pay close attention. Because if the Bible keeps warning us about the same problem, it's expecting that we're going to fall into that problem. We've got to be open, though, about the, the, the push and the pull factors in all of this as well. Right? There are things that push us out of the faith and things that pull us out of the faith. Both working together. Persecution for our faith. The long endurance needed to persevere in the faith. That is a push factor. It's just a, it pushes us from being faithful to God here in the present moment. But there is also this very strong pull factor from the world. When we see the non-Christians around us prospering without God, the temptation is for us to drop the faith stuff. Dial it back a bit. Don't take it so seriously. Right? Pick up worldly habits and be happy and prosperous like everyone else. So how do you fight that temptation? David says you fight it by remembering that all of life is a breath. Here one moment, gone the next. Those in high places are not going to be there for long. So keep trusting God alone. If humans are but a breath, in contrast, God is infinitely weighty. The final part of this psalm points us to some big truths. Have a look at verse 11 to 12. Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. First, in contrast to those who appear powerful, all all power actually belongs to God. Secondly, God is steadfast in his love. He is the faithful one to his promises and his word. He set his affections on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is the one who wills his promises to be fulfilled to Israel. He will powerfully and lovingly bring about his promised blessings to his people. God, knowing God is all-powerful, yeah, that's a, that's a no-brainer for God's people. But what does God do with that power is of interest with us, to us. And so we see in the final words of verse 12 that God in his power gives to men what they deserve. He satisfies our desire for justice. And in this psalm, in a psalm where the wicked appear to prosper and get away with it, this is a much-needed shot of truth. But can you see as well that it's a double-edged sword? It's a double-edged truth. Because God's power and justice does mean that the wicked will not get away with their wickedness forever. But it also means that our own wickedness is under scrutiny as well. See, the message of the Bible is that getting what you deserve, being rewarded for your work, 
is bad news. Because we're all rebellious sinners who deserve judgment and death. And that's Paul, what Paul says in the opening chapters of Romans, neatly summarized in chapter 2, verse 6 to 8, in chapter 3, verse 10 to 12. He says this in chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So you see in verse 6 that Paul is actually quoting from our psalm today, right? He will render to each one according to his work. Paul is saying the same thing as David. God is the all-powerful one who will judge everyone justly. And if you seek good, if you seek glory and honor and immortality, as in the, to glorify God and honor him, then he will give you that. But he says this in Romans 3, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that's a big problem. It's a problem for us because everything we deserve is judgment just like the wicked but not only is it a problem for us it's a problem for God as well how can God who is all-powerful but also steadfast loving be true to his promises and keep them if his promises to bless his people end up failing because of the wickedness of his people then is God really all-powerful? See, he can either be all-powerful and judge everyone, or he can be loving, but he'll have to sweep some sins under the carpet. How can he be both all-powerful and loving at the same time? The good news of the Bible is that the Son of God has come to deal with all of that. Christmas makes no sense without Easter. For in the death of Jesus, we see the power and steadfast love of God on display. God the Father sending the Son of God to show us the love of God, to save us from the wrath of God, so that we could enjoy the presence of God forever. Let me say that again. God the Father sending the Son of God to show us the love of God, to save us from the wrath of God, so that we can enjoy the presence of God Forever, And if you think that sounds good, it is because it's from John Piper. David wrote Psalm 62 to remind himself and his listeners that God alone is that powerful saviour and the only one they should trust. He wrote Psalm 62 to grow confidence in God's care for his people, especially when faced with opposition and those who use their wealth and their power to prosper and oppress. Trust God and keep trusting Him, even when it looks like following the wicked is the path to prosperity. And it is finally in sending the son, His Son Jesus, which brings the promises and hopes of Psalm 62 to life. So what does this mean for us today? And more importantly, what does it mean for us in 2020 and beyond? If 2020 was anything like 2019, 
I suspect that it will have its fair share of hardships, calamities, sorrow, grief, death, persecution, and weariness. And yet, in the middle of all of that, we can still find a space to be silent and wait on our Lord. Reminding our hearts to be silent and still in the middle of the storm surrounding us. Remember, waiting doesn't always mean being at peace and serenity. Waiting in silence does, is not a, a place that happens when God takes away the stress and the anxiety. Sometimes we need to speak to ourselves in the middle of anxiety, worry, and stress, as David does towards his soul in verse 5. We need to preach to ourselves the message that Jesus is king. Jesus is in control. He is our rock and salvation, our refuge in the storm. And Jesus is the one we place all our hope and trust in for 2020 and beyond. To trust Jesus looks like growing in confidence that Jesus is trustworthy. Remember the purpose of this psalm was to help grow the confidence of God's people in their God. And today it speaks to us to encourage us to keep growing our confidence in trusting our Savior, Jesus Christ. So how do you grow your confidence? How do you grow your trust in Jesus? And the simple answer is you get to know him better. John Calvin, in his commentary on this psalm, says it very pointedly. God must speak and we must hear. It is our duty to ponder on what he has said long and deliberately. Meditate upon it again and again, lest the the lapse of time might obliterate it from our memory. Right? The more we know God, the more we will know God and Jesus Christ. The more we know God's word, the more we know God and Jesus Christ. The more we know him, the more we will trust him. If we're not in the word regularly, the more likely the memory of that will fade in our heads. To meditate on the word isn't just to memorize the words, but to engage with and understand and remember the meaning of those words. Have you made your New Year's resolutions yet? You've got three more days to work them out. New Year's resolutions have a long history dating back to apparently the early Babylonians. It's the tradition of making promises at year's end or at year's start uh, for the future. Promises to yourself. Now some of these are often quite simple. Quit smoking, lose some weight, join the gym. Other New Year's resolutions can be more weighty. Get in touch with a long lost friend or family member. Rebuild, reconnect with loved ones. Attempt to share the gospel with someone that you know. But for 2020, I want to give us all a resolution that will pay off big if we keep it. In 2020, let us together resolve to read our Bibles daily so that we know Jesus better. Let us together resolve to know Jesus better that we might trust him with the whole of our lives. And let us trust Jesus and shape our lives around him and his mission. And let us do all of this in the middle of hardship and crisis and stress and worry, encouraging each other as we go along.
Let's resolve to do that. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you alone can rescue and save us. And you did that by sending your son. So help us to know him better through every page of scripture. Help us to be resolved to want to know you more through your word and to be encouraged to know and trust your son more and more and to live and shape our lives around him. Help us encourage each other to do that. That our conversations, our catch-ups, our, our talk over lunches and, and whenever we gather, will focus on how we're going at trusting your son and not trusting the things of this world. Father, we pray that you'll be at work in us always for our good, for our joy, and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.